Hi, good day, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Positive Enterprise Value can be found on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com, where we freely share lots of immediately useful information for high-performing entrepreneur-owner managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. Ever notice that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, even ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners they've chosen, the EOMs moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by their friends, their families, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune they've just realized, while others, others' outcomes sometimes can look more like a train wreck. Is it merely luck, or is it more than that? At Bigelow, we think it's more than luck. So for over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds of them. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, kind of breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. So in this series of podcasts, I interview these people, these high-performing entrepreneur-owner managers who are not only high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains. What do you do when you move to a new city, look at the school system, and decide you are really called to open a Montessori school? Many people would form a private for-profit or not-for-profit entity and do just that. But not Merrill Levin. When she moved from Manhattan to Manchester, New Hampshire, and wanted to start a Montessori school, because she was so committed to public education generally, she was passionately called to do the regulatory dance, form a board of trustees, raise the startup funding, all to form New Hampshire's first public charter Montessori school, now called the Mill Falls Charter School. Merrill is a graduate of NYU. She's been a community organizer, a successful photojournalist, a published author. She's received awards and fellowships relating to her artistic creativity, and all that led her naturally to take on the startup of a new not-for-profit, highly regulated enterprise. Today, she leads Mill Falls Charter Schools as its executive director for its K-6 system that is now completely oversubscribed and where students and their parents have to be admitted by lottery. I had the good luck of catching up with Merrill on a busy weekday at the Mill Falls School, where to get a quiet spot, hey, it's an elementary school, we had to huddle away in a supply closet, literally, I kid you not, and had an hour-long personal conversation that you'll have a chance now to listen to. I had the fun of digging into some of Merrill's inspirations, motivations, disappointments, successes, and I would say lessons learned in this hour-long podcast. She was very generous and candid in her remarks. This podcast was recorded live on December 3rd, 2018 from a supply closet at the Mill Falls Charter School at their location in a former manufacturing plant on East Industrial Drive in the Industrial Park in Manchester, New Hampshire. As always, these podcasts are unscripted and unedited. Hope you enjoy it. So um, one of the questions I was looking forward to asking you is, uh, I was thinking about 
what I know of your background, maybe I'll know more after this interview, but I was thinking about your uh, persona as other people might see you as the founder of the Mill Falls Charter School as the, do you call yourself the executive director? Yeah. The executive director of it. Um, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you have a lot of other roles in life. But if you could like go to the whiteboard and have a whiteboard clean, if, you, if I asked you what are a couple of nouns that you would use to describe yourself today, what would they be? So I've arrived at the seat of this executive directorship um, in kind of a bifurcated way. Um, or maybe you could even add a third path. But so um, when I was in college, toward the end of college, I was very involved in uh, street activism. It was in the age of um, AIDS and ACT UP. And, and remind when, me, where was this? In New York City. Right. I was at NYU, Tish. And um, also uh, women's health care. Um, my particular issue was mostly around um, access to abortion. And so I was doing maybe a lot of naughty things with those groups. But then also I realized that what I always wanted to do was document that kind of thing and other sort of social issues. And so um, I began to make that switch. But my roots were very much about, you know, looking at an issue or a problem and then thinking about how to address them, <laughs> sometimes creatively, um, sometimes um, uh, inside the system, sometimes outside the system, you could say. And so, um, so that might seem tangential, but then you know, for the next 25 years after that, I um, documented the um, various issues that relate to education, housing, and welfare, um, the notion of health in a very broad way. Um, and then I came up to New Hampshire, about nine months pregnant, and I um, was lucky enough to stay at home with Elias for the first several years. But I looked around and thought, you know, so after this preschool Montessori thing that you're doing, what's going to happen for you next? And I'm not from here, and I didn't understand what was here. So I went back to my roots as a kind of problem solver person, which is, I think, one of the ways people might describe. Okay. And, um, and it was that idea that gave me the op that, that, um, those roots, I think, that gave me the opportunity to follow a thought, an idea. What if we did this amazing thing in a public setting? So back to the, I feel like I have to sort of describe that. So back to sure. the words that you were asking or ways that people might describe, um, tenacious, um, scrappy, um, um, uh, inexhaustible. I've been called the energizer bunny. Um, there are, um, you know, <laughs> any kinds of words that may, um, kind of a quick study. So I'm not always, um, in deep on what it is that I'm taking on at the beginning, but I, I can kind of, you know, sort of quickly learn how to then at least at a minimum articulated, if not um, just for celebration, but really sort of think about structure and format and that and kind of thing. And when I heard your story, I'd also say like uh, creative, uh, mom, um, wife, yeah. sister, yeah. daughter, um, uh, leader, um, entrepreneur. Right. Uh, right. Visual. Yeah. Storyteller. I think those pieces are really also super important to me. So... Um, We'll, we'll come back to like kind of what the story was to how you got here, but just going way back for a second, were your parents entrepreneurs? No, my dad was... This was uh, Stan and Judy? Yep, so my dad was a dentist, and my mom had studied to be a concert violinist, and when she graduated, or was getting close to graduation, um, her parents were like, well, that's been great, and I know we've driven you to every violin lesson on the planet since you were like, could walk, but now you need to be a teacher. So she was not, for most of her life, entrepreneurial in nature. 
Um, but she did find many means of later taking her writing skills and other creative stuff and I think because ultimately creativity is what drove her um, and so I would argue maybe both of us and you know my brother is also a, a writer um, and director and whatever so I think each of the three of us certainly take that it's it's almost embarrassing that I forgot to use the word creative but that creative launch is probably what starts each of us going in the various sections that we've gone and what did your mom teach well, so she started out teaching music, then she was teaching music to emotionally disturbed kids, and then ultimately, um, in the early days of gifted and talented programming, she sort of kicked that off, um, and that was probably the tail end of her educational career at that point. And did you ever have her as officially as a teacher? No. No. How would that have been? No. <laughs> so, um, were you, what kind of student were you? I was a nerd. Yeah. yeah, I was a really, you know, I, I'm not a great test taker, but I, I was, um, I'm competitive, I guess. So I, you know, always sort of wanted the best grade that I could get and that kind of thing. And it's very funny now being in a Montessori environment where it's totally not about that. Right. Um, so I often find myself saying, oh, if I'd only learned it this way, I would be better at it. Right. You know, right. Um, but yeah, I was really nerdy. So you've opened up a whole bunch of boxes there. Like one of the things I want to talk about with you is... Um, how, the, so my view of the public school experience often is the students who get the best grades or do the best well are really the ones who figure out how to conform the best compared to um, what my sense is that um, the Montessori method is trying to teach, uh, and which is a little bit more about maybe uh, independent thinking, critical thinking, which um, isn't necessarily about conformance. Could you speak to that a little bit? It's so funny that you're saying that. I was just reading a study last night about, um, you know, do kids who do the best in school do the best in life? Right. And which, you know, we've talked about this before and with some of our other friends. And we could point almost to everybody and say, no, they don't. Um, and I think, um, you know, the idea that not only might not they do the best in life in terms of be successful or feel fulfilled or that kind of thing, but they're, this notion of conforming is um, that was sort of a struggle for me because because I was competitive and the context that I was in as a young student was to do well on the test, right? Memorize it, forget about it, get the next thing right, whatever. Um, but I also had this creative piece. So when I finally got to go to art school, I was like, oh, now I get it. Right. You can do both. Yeah. But that's not what the typical construct is. Even in many colleges, it's not set up that way. Definitely so, not. you know, it's not just the, the public school setting that we think of in a sort of concrete box, but it's it's kind of education broadly, except on its edges or, you know, sometimes in those innovative pockets. Do you think that your experiences, sorry, were you a public school student? I was. Yeah. And do you think that your experiences there kind of, um, they fueled some of your fire here? Well, I believe strongly in public school education um, because, because. I, because I think it's like a human right. And so I want to make sure that not only you have access to walk in a door, but the creation of this place is to be able to say, I want to do that in the most creative way, in the way that will make your toes wiggle about learning, that will engage you in your own success, that will create independent um, learners who are engaged in the process of curiosity. Okay, so you said you're committed to public school education, and you didn't use this exact word, but I will for a minute, because you believe in having free access. It's almost a right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm mm -hmm. with you. But that could be free access. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that the government has to execute the public school education, does it? 
No, I think though that um, if we assume as a country that something is a, a basic right, right, then there needs to be a base level of funding of that. Agree. Um, and so there are many people who feel uncomfortable with public funding not being publicly controlled. I'm not actually one of those people, but that is that I think becomes our national dilemma with how do we do this public school thing? How do we do it creatively? How do we allow, you know, um, um, innovation that comes up from the bottom um, if we're supposed to all be kind of carefully doing what everybody else is supposed to be doing? On the other hand, if you go in that direction too far, then you have states that have are meeting a bare minimum, which I don't know how you feel about this, but the idea that, you know, our zip code shouldn't define who we can become, if there's now a commercial out there saying. Um, but there's a truth to that. That ought not be what limits For sure. what we can do. For so, sure. So it is, so you described it as a public dilemma, and it really is, is, is isn't it? Because it's not only in the education domain. Um, we're struggling with that public funding, um, private execution versus public execution issue. But it's also in the healthcare domain right now, very much, and you know, it's a dialogue for us, and it's probably in some other domains. I mean, I think about how um, probably there's pretty wide agreement that there should be um, mandatory schooling, you know, up to some grade. I guess not right now we would say it's up to an age, but maybe it's an age or a grade, and that there should be free mandatory schooling, and then. Um, where I think the dialogue starts to maybe come apart a little bit is like, well, who's going to execute on that schooling? For example, in the post-secondary uh, market, you have both public and private entries into that, and they seem to be able to sort of compete just fine. So it makes me just scratch my head about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are laws on the books here in New Hampshire. Kids, until they're 16, are um, obligated, and their guardians are obligated to make sure that they're in school. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that if you're, again, if you're going to say that it's kind of a right and also say that there's a law that requires it, then there has to be space for Access. making that happen, yeah. access for making that happen. And yeah. I, I think in other places, the public-private lives better than it seems to in this state. And, mm -hmm. you know, even though I've been here for, I don't know, almost 15 years or so, it's still, I'm, I still <laughs> struggle sometimes to understand some of the thinking around things that are really different in a state like New York where we have actual very specific education funding and taxes that relate to that versus here it's kind of in a pot with lots of other stuff. So there is a, um, a New Yorker and she, after college, becomes, my words, a bit of a social activist. After that becomes a social activist, cum photojournalist. What brought her to Manchester, New Hampshire? Love. Love. <laughs> love. Free or die, baby. You no, know, not love of New Hampshire. My love was in New Hampshire. And I, 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 but I encountered that love, you know, in an elevator in Athens, Greece. And then like the, doors, the doors opened again and it was Manchester. Um, well, so I was uh, working on a project about the Kurds. And I was uh, an assistant to a woman who, Susan Mycellus, who had gotten this amazing uh, MacArthur grant to do what became a 10-year project about the Kurds. The first... Um, 
visual telling of their story, very complex story. And so um, the Turks and the Greeks don't really get along very well, and the Turks and the Kurds don't get along very well. So the Greeks, when they heard about this project, were like, bring it! So we, we were traveling around the world with this exhibit and this Random House book, so this was just one of many stops on the train. Oh, and see. when I arrived in Athens a couple days later, my husband now um, was on vacation. And the place where we were holding the exhibit was a place that was being the director of that um, organization, had been a longtime New Hampshire resident, very active um, guy who you may know. And uh, so we met in, well, I mean, we were in the same lobby and then quickly in the same elevator. And I the got rest is history. Uh, the rest is history. He tells it much better than I do. So I don't, I don't want, you'll have to interview him. <laughs> so, so. Um as you were making that journey, uh, did you ever think that a stop along the way was going to be as an education entrepreneur? No. Um, when I first started coming here, so I lived in New York. We went back and forth for about seven years. Sure. Um, and it took so, a while. Yeah, well, it's hard to give up New York, you know. Yeah. So when I first started coming here, I realized I have to get involved in something to photograph. If I'm going to be here for three or four days a week, i got to figure something out. So I started by looking at new immigrants, actually, and I started on that story. I met with Selma Deutsch, and I was looking at all the edges of our town, sure. right, what happens yeah. here, and all these incredible movers and shakers. And, um, and then Will would tell me, my husband Will would often tell me about these um, campaign things that he did because he was involved with about three um, national campaigns and many, many more local. Right. And uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd done some politics because I belonged to uh, a um, cooperative of social documentary photographers for years. And so, you know, I'd done a lot of that in New York. you got to pay your bills, and, and it's interesting. And so um, we ended up doing a book about young people in politics uh, in the 0304 primary where there were like seven... Um, it was a Democratic-only um, uh, uh, primary season, and so we did a book over the course of the year. And so I began to sort of dig in and get an idea of how people do things here. And you know, so did, along the way, um, did you ever have like a, a job that you worked for a traditional employer? No. Now. <laughs> but before now, never. <laughs> no. No, and you can't call this traditional either. So no, I, I have never had to sit and go to one, the same place every day. I've never sat, I never had a desk at a place, for, certainly for five days a week. I, there was never a water cooler, not that we have that here, but I mean, there was never, yeah. you know, I just, it, when I worked for someone, it would often be a few days a week and I'd be, you know, holding down the fort while person X was traveling or, you know, cause they were photojournalists that I worked for. So no, I mean, you know, I mean, I had, jobs. I, I worked at NYU. I worked in the film department and I, you know, had other things, but nothing where it was kind of postgraduate. You're going to the same place every day. You're expected to do these things. It was not like that. So as you moved into that role of from being, uh, from being like an individual contributor, like a photojournalist, to being a leader of an organization, what are like a couple of top of mind things that were um, challenging or surprising to you? Well, you know, um, before that, I was a tennis player. So you see a theme here, right? Yeah. So, you know, the I, although I love people and I love groups of people, the idea of management, of kind of hierarchy, <laughs> these are all things that have been a process for me to learn and figure out and, you know, trip over sometimes. And that has, that, I would say that is probably remains the most challenging for me. I can figure out how to do this form or how to do that report or, you know, how to make some computer work that we can't figure out. You know, I, I can somehow 
manage to navigate those things. But I think the people piece, everybody always asks, so how's school? And it's, you know, we've got the little people. We've got, you know, all of their parents, sometimes their grandparents, and then the teachers and staff and our landlord and the state and the Board of Education and the superintendent of Manchester. And, like, you know. Lots of stakeholders. Oh, my God. So many people. And through all of that, you have to remain dignified and seemingly in control and (laughs) seemingly smart and, you know, sort of pull off the illusion that you can do that every day. And that's really hard. So um, as you move from um, being a New York-based person to seven years of going back and forth and then ending up in uh, Manchester with your husband and now son, um, what was the uh, initial uh, motivation for thinking about Mill Falls School, what has become Mill Falls School? So when we first had Elias, our son, who's now 12, um, he, I had, didn't really know how education, I knew if I stayed in the Lower East Side in the East Village, I knew what school, whatever kid I was going to have was going to go to, but that's not how life played out. So, um, so we started to look around for a preschool and, um, graduate student kiddos of friends of ours, graduate student level at that time, um, said, you know, you got to check out this Bedford Montessori place. I think you're going to love it. We know Elias. That's where he has to go. We went there. We're positive. That's where he needs to go. So that's how it all started. So I kind of blame this whole process a little bit on them and a little bit on the amazing educator who owns that organization, um, Gail Bannon. And so out of that, I saw year one and Elias was thriving. And then I saw year two and they only go for three years. So it's like, so what do you guys do after this? Where do people go? And so there was a mom who had four kids and I just had my one. And she said, I don't really know what we're going to do, but I know I have four kids and you have one. I hear there's this charter school thing. So why don't you go figure it out (laughs) and let me know what you learned? So comes back to the nerd competitive. And so, um, so in fact, the charter school model at that point was just a pilot program and there were only a couple of slots left. So once I set my mind to it, I was sure we were going to get one. And um, so it began, you know, an insane year and a half of opening a public school. So in a way, though, the, the way that you just described that, um, coming from the outside, the way I look at it is you actually could have um, founded a school outside of the public system. Right. And you chose to found a school, I think, um, skillfully and unusually uniquely but still within the public school system right tell tell me about that yeah i realize i left out that rather important piece so um so both will and i are public school people and um i um was surprised to find that there wasn't any innovative public school option because when you see the littles doing so well in this kind of setting where they're able to access and move around and move at their own pace and all the things that Montessori are about, um, it seems surprising to me that there wouldn't be that option here because there's so many Montessori's, private Montessori's across the state. Like there were 25 when we, you know, on the southern tier when we first started going. So, um, but we felt really, I felt really strongly that I wanted him in a public setting. And by the way, this is great for my kid because I can afford to do this for two years or three years. But what about everybody who can't afford to do it? And that seems wholly unfair and also an unrealized opportunity. So it was really that piece that brought me back into, uh, you know, searching the public model. And, and New Hampshire only offers one model of innovation at the moment, which is this also oh, very challenging charter model. And that's it. Other cities have magnets where you know, two districts will come together or communities will come together to foster something. And, and we don't really have that here. So there was really only one route to take. So so you woke up at age, I'm guessing, 30-something and decided, I've got to go do this. And 
I'm going to scratch this itch. But to do that within the public system, did that still require you to do some fundraising? Well, and also I had to be 40-something to do that. Okay. Um, so it did require a lot of fundraising. Um, so when so, we... Uh, I mean, how did you do that? Yeah. You didn't really have a background in, like, <laughs> no. you weren't in the venture business. No. What, what did you but do? I, well, I had been writing grants since the beginning of my photographic time. And I also had myself a pie that was cut up into, you know, I was teaching, I was working for two photographers, I had grants going, I was doing magazine prize. So the idea that you had to look in lots of pockets to find money was not unfamiliar to me. Right. Um, And the idea that the story that I was trying to tell was enough of a motivator, I would hope, for someone else, whether it be an editor or a funder, to be able to um, put money toward this idea. Not because it was me doing it, per se, but because the story mattered. So I'd already kind of dabbled in the zone of, you know, how do you ask for money? But did you, did you like Not to write at this like level. what I would think of as a business plan? Did you like have a plan and that you needed funding over a certain number of years? And did you attract people to that who believed yeah. in you? What yeah. did you do? Yeah. So um, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, a business guy as my husband. And um, so, you know, he thought this was really interesting and an appealing and a, an interesting challenge. And I could also look at the group that came together to found the school and none of them had either deep pockets or a clue of how to ask for money, a clue. So we created a foundation that sits beside the school and we populated that with citizen fundraisers who felt excited about this new idea and kind of up for the challenge of trying to find the money. And um, it was a combination because we do get a certain amount of public money, but we don't get enough. We get far less than, at that point, it was far less than half of what the state average was. So in order to run the place and and be healthy financially, we had to know that we could raise these dollars. And so it um, it was that effort. And then, you know, I mean, just literally when you guys leave, I will be sending out the annual appeal and, you know, still at it every day. Um, so so there's um, it's been an incredible learning curve. And I've had the chance to learn from people who live in New Hampshire who have figured out because in New Hampshire, a lot of the work of government is actually done by nonprofits. Right. We've talked sure. about this before. Sure. And so um, there are a lot of people who are really good at asking and then. Many people, many of us are the same people that get asked by all the people who do the asking. So there's also a lot of that that happens. But there's a lot of talent here in terms of understanding um, how to access a fair amount of dollars that are here in the state. So I've, I've also had the chance to sort of see it in action and learn and, um, and also learned how to beg. I will say people sometimes cross the street when they see me now. That happens. Listeners to the uh, Positive Enterprise Value podcast can't see us, so they can't see that I'm mostly shaking my head. Well, yes, nodding my head. While you're while you're talking, I would say that um, you started off by saying that there's lots of uh, things that governments should do that we do privately in New Hampshire. I think we're I personally feel very lucky and very grateful that we live in a place where actually the not-for-profit social sector does a bunch of things on a grassroots basis, and that the public sector doesn't have to get their fingers into it. So I think like including what you're doing. So I just I'm filled with admiration for that. But um, I don't think we knew each other when you were beginning the school, and so I don't know that I know this, this story exactly, but I, I feel like you've referred a couple times to when you began the, the founding of the school and the funding of the school, you were going to lead it for a while, but you were going to give that away. And that's a story that many entrepreneurs know. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh dear, yes. I never imagined that I would be sitting in this seat. So the idea was that I would get back to my real life <laughs> documentary photographer, um, but I saw this little problem and I thought I'd come up with a way to fix it and then someone else who knows how to do it could go and so, run with it. An educator. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or people who run schools or, okay, yeah. or really either any of those. And so <laughs> because in New Hampshire you can start a charter school by either two educators coming together or ten parents. And so in our case it was ten parents that came together and then as soon as we got the approval, I brought on some educators because that seemed clear that we needed that. And but I was the board chair, and so that was I was happy to do that. You know, I could figure out how sure, to connect people, sure. raise money, do that other stuff. But I really did not imagine that I would be doing this job. So the first time I came in to do this job was um, between year one and year two, where there we had hired the first person and um, he was fantastic. But it was really hard to do this work, and nobody really except for the six or eight other schools that were in existence had ever tried it before here. Yeah, yeah. And so um, so even in building the job description, it was pretty hard to figure out, like, well, we think we know what you need to do. But So the board was totally in the weeds. I was basically doing half of the job from my kitchen table. And so that was the first time around. So I bridged us to the next summer. We to that Through the summer, we hired the next person. So excited. Here, you, here are the keys. Have at it. And that also didn't work. And so there were three people actually that we went through and I did two interim so I would get off the board and become the interim person and then get back on the board and so finally the board was like could you just do it <laughs> and I have to say over those four and a half years I really did kind of learn how to do it because I felt like this thing can't fail we've got like a hundred kids here right at that time and staff and all the families who believed in us and the funders who've given us money like I don't care that you can't do the job we got to do it so that's how I learned how to do it so do you think that the the fact that you had thought about giving it away and had to step in a couple of times did it kind of give you the confidence to realize like I can do this um yeah but it was more like I have to do right. it I mean I now no... I feel like I can do it but I mean it, it, it was like there wasn't really a choice. And then as we started, because the first round before I really took the last interim version position was, you know, we interviewed people. And it was like, I don't think any of them can do it. Because I know what it is now. Not because I'm so great at it, but because I know what all the elements are. So, you know, I've learned how to do it. And I have an amazing team. I mean, this, we are really a team. It's, I'm, it sounds like it's just me here holding it all together. No. But that is not at all how it goes. No, but I'm chuckling because you're spoken like a true founding entrepreneur who starts <laughs> out and does it and then gives it away and gets it back and gives it away. And no it's matter like a how hot much, potato. Isn't it? You just try to give it away, but you keep getting the responsibility back. Um, what is the fourth R in education? Oh, reading, writing, arithmetic, and re-engagement. <laughs> and re-engagement. Re tell me about that. Um, I know. You're, you're referencing the, the TED Talk. I, and I, I thought it was you, responsibility. Yes, it is. No, okay, it is. good. Um, so the, the responsibility piece is that um, kind of goes back to what you asked at the beginning, this notion of um, that education is a human right, that we are all responsible for the success of the kiddos that we're either making or helping to keep healthy or whatever it is that we're doing, it's but everything. the people who come after us. Right. Um, and so it's not enough to say, um, for example, we live in a town here where less than a quarter of the households have people of school age, 18 or younger, in their homes. So it's kind of a argument of hearts and minds that we, you know, you might not have a kid 
anywhere on your block even. But you're going to have to know that we're taking the time and putting the resources toward educating those kids because you're going to want to hire them for your business or have them fix your car or, you know, do whatever is going to be needed so, to do. So that's let's like answering the responsibility um, point from the point of view of a taxpayer or a funder, right? What about, um, so that's good, what about a responsibility from the point of view of, let's say, a school leader or a teacher? Well, I would even argue that that's only one piece, even just going back further, is that there's also the social and emotional responsibility. So if we're not creating, um, so a couple weeks ago, there was a, a fight at Central High, which you may or may not have heard about. And there was My a video. I know. And there was a video that was circulated. And guess what? There's been fights in high school since the beginning of high school, right? This that, is not, yeah. no. Um, you may or may not have experienced that. But I did. Um, so, anyway, so this video went around and it was really one of those like that you'd see on CNN kind of videos and whatever. And I was talking with, with Will and I said, you know, here's the thing. The girl that started the fight, we all want to sort of be like, you know, that was awful. Was so she didn't get made overnight. Right, that, that, that moment didn't happen overnight. It happened from a series of things that have not properly supported her and given her a skill set to be able to succeed. Mm. So it's not just the financials, not just the tax piece, it's kind of that overarching idea. And when I talked about the four R's in that TED Talk, it was really about, you know, why do we need school you know, change? Because we need to admit that you know, part of being available for learning is being emotionally available for learning and supported. So here, when you, if you're a parent, you get a report card and you're going that, over that at, at your parent-teacher conference, here's a writing sample, here's a, and here's what we're seeing you know, in the area of leadership. And here's what you could try at home to really support the emotional piece. So the responsibility for all of us is, is much rounder than simply um, you know, either the curriculum or the funding for it. So you know all of the data, and you can probably quote the statistics, I'm sure you can, about the lack of performance of public schools across the country, across our state, maybe across the city. Um, I'm a product of public schools. In fact, I'm a product of public schools in this city. And I have to say that um, I don't look back on those years with any fondness. I view those years as being a great deal of pain because I was forced to be in a school where I was being lectured to by teachers who were teaching me what was important to them, not necessarily which was going to be helpful to me to learn how to learn. I, I figured that out, but it took a long time. Um, so I've sort of concluded as an observer that the public school system across the country, and by the way, I hear this in every city I go to, that the public school system is broken. And I guess the question I would ask before we ask, can we have a solution to it, is, is it fixable? I know. Well, you know, we, I've been very involved. Will has been extraordinarily involved in the Manchester Proud. I was just going to um, ask you, movement. what, what yeah. did you think about Manchester yeah. Proud? Yeah, so, you know, that, that's a group of um, citizens, um, uh, business people and educators who came together to say, hey, things are looking great in our city, but there's a little bit of a gap. <laughs> There's one area where, you know, either perception or reality or both is not at the same level as many of the other things that we're seeing flourishing. Um, and so um, I was involved in one piece of work, which was to select, go through and select um, who would lead the strategic planning piece. So that was my small contribution. Um, and uh, but Will was one of those first original people to sit down and, and pull this idea out of the hat. And I think um, I'm really conflicted because I think some days 
you know, you can sort of, you can imagine a path. You can imagine that you get sort of the smartest people together, the most um, uh, people with the most sort of conviction from the community, positive energy mm -hmm. from the community, and, you know, really wanting to come together to make change. And I've done that from the street side if we mm -hmm. go all the way back to my original stuff. Um, and I've seen the magic of that. But um, other days I just think, yeah, but we can't say, okay, kids, stay home for a year because we got to fix this little situation. Right. And I, I, so I, I really struggle. And so, um, you know, the reality is <laughs> I've sort of circumvented that problem by saying, let's create a public school setting that creates um, exactly the opportunity for kids to learn how to learn. You could talk to our some of even our first or second graders, but certainly our third graders and older, and they can tell you what they need to learn and what they like about this learning style and um, what kind of learners they are. And, you know, here's why I like these manipulatives, because it helps me to understand X, Y, or Z. Um, and it's, you know, I couldn't articulate that till, frankly, after college. And I had two really great college experiences, and I still, like, I see these kids, and they can really say. So all of those kids should have that opportunity, but I don't know how we get there except sometimes by starting over, which is not, you know, you can, I don't think you can do that system-wide. I mean, you could do it in um, New Orleans, right? Because yeah. nature made it happen. Yeah, there's, if there's um, a crisis, you know, it's with individuals or with an organization or with a system, right? If you have a crisis, it's relatively easy to bring about change. But when you're just in the slog of it, I, I don't know. And that's uh, when the folks at Manchester Pride came to speak to me uh, about supporting them, which I did, but I expressed my... Uh, my worry for them, which was to try to solve this issue preemptively, it seems like that's a very difficult challenge in our country. We, if there's an issue we can solve preemptively, we don't. We wait till there's a crisis, and then we all get behind it. We know we can, we can it, solve this. It could be said we have a crisis, though. It, Fair. it could be said. Yeah. So if you were the Secretary of Education, what are the two or three things you do right away in the public school system? Hmm. That was a um, well, I think there are two zones that I keep returning to when I think about how do we innovate in our schools. Um, there's, and outside of those two zones, there's sort of the overarching piece of leadership. But I'm just going to leave that alone for a second, the, the sort of, you know, managerial leadership stuff. That's up here for a minute. But on the sort of um, practical side, I don't feel like we're training our teachers in the way that science has explained to us <laughs> that we learned. And you and I have figured it out post, you know, our formal education years, right? We'll figure it out later. Um, but we know it. We know that every classroom needs to be differentiated. We know that kids need to get excited about what it is that they're doing. We know that our senses help us to tap into our brain. I mean, all these things that not to but Maria Montessori was like, she was brilliant. Like, she was a visionary in terms of these things. And so, um, you know, we know these things, but that's not how we're training our, our, our teacher students. So I think there's that piece. And then for the existing teachers that are, you know, practicing their craft already, um, or, you know, at least in their professional tracks, they need professional development. They need, if they weren't trained that way, but they're the people in, in situ at the moment, we have to figure out how to empower them to get there. And they're not going to get there. They're only going to get frustrated if they're not supported in, in that change. Because it's, it's a tidal wave of a change. I mean, it really is so different. You know, when you think about here, we have multi-age classrooms, three grades. And you're going to have many levels within those grades. So it's 24 kids, three different grades. Maybe of the eight kids that are in each grade, 
there might be two or three levels. So there's one classroom that has 11 different reading groups of 24, you know, out of 24 kids. Yes. So you have to, it requires an incredible intelligence, but it also requires the uh, training to understand how do you split your, you know, how do you split the day into enough pieces so that, you know, we're reaching everybody in the room and helping them reach their potential. And then I would argue, so back to the leadership piece, is that those people trained properly and empowered can become the leaders who can elevate the schools and elevate what it is that we're doing. But I don't think, you know, you can't, it isn't, it's sort of like when people say, well, the real problem with public education, you've got to look at the high schools. No. You need to look at, you know, having preschool prepping the kids for a good positive kindergarten year and then getting them ready to move through the process so that they can be um, going out for internships and have that independent understanding what they need to learn and having that independence to be able to go out into the world and be productive interns. Otherwise, you know, that's that's an exercise, but they're not going to succeed and the recipient of the intern won't be too happy either because they just won't have the skill set except for an extraordinary kid here or there who can pull it off. Yeah, I mean, you've described uh, both system and structure. Uh, my, my experience has been that uh, for the vast, vast majority of all teachers are uh, super well-intentioned and conscientious and hardworking and want uh, great outcomes for their students. Absolutely. Uh, but they're in a system, in a public school system, which, to, you know, not only are there issues on the leadership level, many of them are political. Right. But there are also dug-in constituencies who have different points of view and different uh, incentives, frankly, when you start talking about the mm -hmm. teachers' unions and the parents and the grandparents and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just, uh, I find it interesting that you were brave enough to try to go into the inside and say, yeah, I'm going to try to do this new experiment inside the public school system because I think a lot of people, me included, might have said, screw that, I'm not going to, can't waste my energy on that, I'm going to try to do something outside of it. When you did do it inside of it, um, you moved probably into a place that was pretty unfamiliar to you, right? Um, was that scary? And my real question is, in hindsight, were you concerned about the correct things? It definitely was scary, I, I will say that, um, because, you know, I don't have a degree in fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not a principal. I'm not a teacher even. I mean, I've taught, but again, right. no, no degrees in any of that. So in a world where degrees are so important <laughs> in the education world, it is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so that was a little, that was scary and daunting. And I still am sometimes at meeting, I'm like, I'm going to ask the dumb question in the room, but it always brings everybody down to the base. You know, they have to explain it to me. And then in explaining it, they're like, so it, I come in handy sometimes, that, that kind of not knowing. Um, so it was definitely scary. Was I focused on the right things? I think um, maybe it could be said, and you've spoken to so many more people than me about this, but it could be said that starting up anything is, um, is treacherous and chaotic, and you don't always know what you need until maybe you're a little bit further down the road. And so have you pulled in the right partners? Is there the right um, uh, you know, grouping in place? If I could do it over, I, there's certainly things I would do differently. Um, you know, again, all the people business. So there's a lot of distraction and unnecessary drama that happens. I think I learned a lot about what it means to be the person who steps up and what everybody thinks of you when you do that, which doesn't always feel great. Um, so, you know, there was a lot, I've grown a lot. I've gotten tough. And I think when I first 
did any kind of activism, I was always like, so who's interested? Yeah. Anyone out there yeah. interested? Yeah. And I realized that when you're going to do something that requires, especially a school, but any maybe anything. Any organization. Um, but, you know, systems are key. If you don't have systems in place, and schools, I think, are the best example of this in a way. I mean, everything has to work exactly as it needs to or the whole web falls apart. So, you know, I've learned a lot of that and I've gotten a little more Teflon. And so, um, you know, I'm not as naive, which I think served me well, but I'm also, you know, almost 52. So maybe that was gonna happen naturally. I don't know, maybe it was on sped up a little bit. Well, process. certainly, I mean, in, in our uh, mass popular culture, it's uh, aided by social media maybe. I mean, the desire to conform and be liked, right? And to be, and to please, is probably never been higher in our uh, history. And so I get what you're saying about if you're a social activist, you know, does anyone else like this but me? Whereas when you become a leader of an organization, I mean, candidly, there are things you need to do to get out on the end of the branch, which are um, monumentally unpopular at the moment, but it's where the organization needs to go. And it's up to the leader, right, to confront that right. and to be able to pull that off is really... Uh, can be a very lonely place. Yeah, I think that that's really true, and and I don't feel that now because I feel like we, we really have we have a great board, we have an amazing staff, we have fantastic parents. But there were certainly times when I really had no idea that it would feel this crappy to do something so important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I've done a lot of hard things, right? Like I've been in war zones. I've wandered through the South Bronx with you know just me for years. A lot of hard things, you know, sat beside people who died after they died, as they're dying. Things that, you know, seem like they would be much harder. But this has, um, I sometimes describe it as the gift that keeps on taking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of uh, seasoned, successful entrepreneurs listening to this are nodding their heads right now, Meryl. They (laughs) they get what it, how uh, hard it is to be you. Let me ask you, um, the times I've visited Mill Falls schools, I've always been impressed, but I haven't seen a lot of technology. Um, what role does technology play here? So we have elementary school kids, K through six, and um, so we have uh, 27 iPads and 25 Chromebooks, and like everything else in school, they are a shelf work. They're something that you'd access if you're doing research, if you're learning how to type, if you're taking a standardized test, um, but they are, they're just something else that is a hands-on experience in the room. Um, However, we realized in year, I don't know, two maybe, that not everybody had equal access to technology. Some people choose not to have their kiddos accessing technology, and other families it is chosen for them because they can't afford to have access. And so we have a um, one of our specials, our integrated arts, um, and we have five of them. One of the days is technology, and so it's everything from, you know, good... um, citizenship in terms of technology and responsible citizenship to learning how to type and navigating. We've done coding, we've done STEM stuff, we've done lots of other things. But I think for for little kids, um, it's really important to be able to have comfort and knowledge about what that is. Um, but remember, they're learning in the context of a room that is filled with other manipulatives and other things that also help them learn how to hold a pencil. Right. <laughs> and, you know, right. some, some other really basic ideas and full systems. The, the materials that are in the rooms are full systems. So in a way, it may, for some some of those kids that are more um, geared toward, no pun intended, but sort of geared toward technology later, the systems piece may serve them very well as they think about coding and as they think about that kind of stuff. But um, so yeah, it's totally present here, but it's not um, uh, everywhere. It's 
it's in its place. So um, many uh, successful entrepreneurs that I know, particularly in the technology areas, and this would be particularly on the West Coast, would have a point of view, um, the, the ones that really are far out, would have a point of view that really schools should not be teaching content that content is immediately accessible for most people instantly from anywhere. And they have uh, projections that would say for all 7 billion people in the world, that's going to be true sooner than maybe you and I would think. But rather schools, rather than teaching content like we were taught, uh, would be teaching you know the concepts of learning how to learn, but maybe also using technology tools. How do you respond to that? Um, I don't think that it matters what the tool is that you're using for that, actually. But would you agree um, with them so, it doesn't make sense to teach content at this point? No. I think you still need to, you know, you that's know, great for when you're... Do you need World War I came after the Civil War? I would, you could even be more basic than that. You, you need to know when you hold one and you put another one in your hand that that's what two looks like and feels like. And, you know, when you're looking at a sphere or when you're looking at it, you know, I, you're not, it's, it's not... You, you have to be introduced to content in a way. And it's interesting that you're asking this. I don't, I'm going to leave that over here for a second, but it's interesting that you're asking this because our son, for the first time, is outside of Montessori setting. And so, um, you know, there was a time he was studying for a test, and it was about the, the uh, depth of the, cru- the Earth's crust. And he had copied down on this study manual what it was from the board, what it was that, you know, the depth of this, the depth of this. And he copied it down wrong. He double copied the same number onto the next line. So one was, what's the depth in the ocean? And the other was, what's the depth of the continent? Well, he only knew, he only caught his mistake where he was like memorizing it. He only Mm -hmm. caught his mistake because since he was in pre-K, he has been making little earths and he's been studying little earths and landforms and all these other things. So he caught that mistake. So you have, there are lots of ways you can get to content, but you have to have space and time to be introduced to it. I think as adults, that's a great idea. And as older learners, that's a great idea. But until you learn the basic pieces, I, I, don't, I don't really think that it's a, it can be a free-for-all in that way. I, j- I just don't think that little brains are going to find their way without guidance. And remember, in a Montessori classroom, the teachers are guides. That's the words that we use. So it's not so far away from what you're saying, but it still does require a basic um, set of scope and sequence of what you're learning and the order in which you're learning it. Great answer. Love it. Most of the entrepreneurs listening to the podcast, Merrill, will be in the for-profit sector, and you're in the not-for-profit sector. And I think in the for-profit sector, they um, have a tool that they use because part of their MO would be that they believe that organizations work best when the entire teams of people almost act like their owners. So they they have a lot of tools they can use to help people feel like owners. Some of it's actual ownership, some of it's substitutes for that. Um, how do you fuel that concept or not as part of like a public school system? So for staff, it's really kind of easy, which might sound weird. But, um, you know, we have um, our staff or each member is able to practice their craft, right? So we might not have the best benefits in the world. And <laughs> I know we don't. Um, and there are other pieces that, that are lacking if they were, you know, a union teacher someplace else. But they absolutely have the ability to shape and mold the experience every single day of the 24 or more if they're doing other things, but of the children that they are, you know, 
who are their charges. And they get to do it in a creative way. We have multi-tiered, you know, team um, work together, the collaborative time together that creates the opportunity for them to together mold and shape what we're doing all the time. And so it doesn't mean that, you know, every single day is, is only, you know, made of that, but because most of the time they're executing, but they have that ability to practice their craft, which I, which I think in their profession is so outside of what is the current norm, unfortunately, unless, frankly, yeah. you're in a private setting. Yeah. And so they have voices at the table. We have professional development once a month. I mean, there's lots and lots of things that we're able to do to have them feel that sense of ownership. Um, do, they have a, do they have a voice in... Um I don't know what they call this. I'll call it governance. So we do have, um, I sit on the board, I'm a non-voting member on the board, as is our, um, I'll call her principal, that's not what we call her, but that's that job. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, we've just uh, completed the research piece of, the, of a new strategic plan. And we actually met um, individually as a staff, with the board sometimes, with staff reps, um, you know, sort of outside of that, pursuing ideas that had come forward to try and imagine them a little bit more. Um, we pulled in um, some parents into that. We even had kids work on that. So we really try and have that sense of, you know, this place can't work unless it's a community. It just can't. We're so sort of underfunded and under, I don't know, resourced, I'll just say, mm -hmm. that, you know, if we don't all come together to make it work, it really, it can't. And I talk about that from my very introduction for new parents to, um, you know, in our in our interviews with new staff. And I, I think that that, um, you know, it does, it's not going to work for every individual, but it certainly is here for those who understand the importance of it and, and, and need that and want that. The woman... I don't know if it's a woman or a man. I, I think you said her. So the woman who you said she's not the principal. We don't call her the principal, mm. but she's the principal. What's her uh, title? So her name is Laura Robleski, and she is the educational program director. Educational program director. Yeah. And what's what? What is your role? Mine is executive director. Okay. So um, another th um, closely held belief that most entrepreneurs would have has to do with role clarity, and they would feel like, gee, you know. Um, owner, manager, leader, that that's got to be really clear to their team in order for their team to be most effective. Um, but you have uh, some roles which I'm, I'm guessing overlap just a little bit from time to time. How have you uh, dealt with that challenge of role clarity? Yeah, we have total role clarity, actually. So my job is everything from you know being the face of the organization out there in the world to fundraising, to unclogging the toilet when it gets stuck, to really making sure that this nonprofit organization, which happens to be a public nonprofit organization, it has a single program right now, and that is our school. And so I, my job is to make sure that everybody who works and goes to and attends and supports the school has what they need to make that happen. Her job is as a much more traditional sort of principal type of school principal, I mean, type of job where she um, is the supervisor to the educational staff. She um, creates structure and expectations and mentoring possibilities and new programs and, you know, oversees the professional development piece of things, whereas I'm, you know, making sure the payroll gets paid. <laughs> so we're very, I mean, our days absolutely dovetail and that happens, but we have real clarity. And then sometimes one of us will say to the other, I need you at that meeting. Mm -hmm. And so that might be because I need Laura to um, really talk about, you know, things from a school side. And she might need me to be there, just not even to say anything, 
just to be the the end of the day, the buck stops with me type person at the table, or to ask those questions that I was referencing before, where it's like we're introducing a new program and people are having trouble understanding it. I'm always great for these basic questions that come with a little bit of whatever because of what my role is here, but also sort of can get to the core. So, you know, we've had... Um, some uh, contract negotiations where we both absolutely had to attend. We both report to the board. Um, there's a real, n we are completely interdependent, but we also have total clarity. And in fact, this year to make it even clearer for staff, we provided them with a chart of if this happens, <laughs> go to this person, um, just to have real clarity about sure. what those were. So, um, so yeah, so w I think we're both entirely comfortable with what those roles are, and where one ends and the other one starts. Would you recommend that kind of relationship to to other schools? Absolutely, I have. Yeah. I have, and I've talked to the DOE about it because I think it's really, it is impossible for one person to do both of our jobs. It's just not, we're already doing 15 y more jobs than. Yet I'm guessing in most other public schools it is one. No, because they, they have a central office, right? So they right. have a school district. So right. they have their lawyers and they have their accounting people and they have their hiring people and they have their firing people probably. And they have you know assistant superintendents to the superintendent. Like there's a lot of layers that happen. We got, we got nothing. So we're all wearing a lot of hats, but we have to have clarity about which hat rack you're allowed to take a hat from, if you will. So um, I think that that's really different then. There's a, there's a lot of, among charter schools, and, and this is true among nonprofits too, there's a lot of replicated services because it's hard to say, well, you know, that's what your organization needs. Mine needs a little bit different. You sure. know? So there isn't always that. So we kind of exist as independent little planets. And um, sometimes that's great and gives us lots of space, and sometimes that's just a lot of repetition. So I'm going to ask you a personal question, so I'm going to ask you also to try to be as coldly objective as you can be, which is um, you know yourself well, and you have a lot of self-awareness, and you can think about friends who know you well if you want. Um, what would you or your best friends say is your unique ability? Not what you're good at, not what you're excellent at, what you have that you do that you do uniquely well. Is it a characteristic or a, a is a characteristic answer this question? It could be a characteristic, it could be a talent, it could be, you know, when you're in flow. All right, I'm going to merge. So I'm going to say creative tenacity would probably be. Creative grit. Does that get at your? Yeah, that's great. So creative and persistently and tenaciously creative. Yeah. yeah. Great. Let me turn a question to a different question now, Meryl. Um, not unique ability, but the thing that might rob you of power, kryptonite. What's your kryptonite? Do you have any? So I think the hardest, um, most challenging piece of any kind of leadership, big, small, um, has to do with a sense of self. And um, that comes not just from you know the outside, but also from the inside. And so a very honest answer is to say that um, the notion that you can actually do something versus you know what you might be telling people you can do, but the idea that you actually can do that and kind of overcoming the the voices of doubt in your head that wake you up in the middle of the night going, 
Right. I said I'm going to do an event for 300 people. Right. <laughs> and I have to, you know, raise this much money. You know, these, how am I going to do it? I mean, that I think is, that's the stumbling block for me almost all the time. You know, can I, can I figure this out? And that's been true whether I was trying to tell a story, whether I was going to a crazy country and I had to figure out, like, how do I rent a car there or get out of the airport or whatever it might be. But it is that self-confidence piece. And I, I don't know if that just comes from being, you know, a woman of a certain age at a certain time um, or if that is just who I was going to be didn't matter, you know, where I grew up or, you know, whether I was, you know, who I, who I was in any way. But, but I think for me that remains my largest and that's a, a completely honest answer <laughs> no i love it and and uh, of course who we are who you are or i am or anyone is is partially a function of us and it's usually partially a function of the group that you're with in other words you could be a different person with different groups right yeah so a question i would ask based upon your answer is as you've you discuss like I could feel that way, Pete, in almost anything that I was trying to accomplish. How am I going to do this? What has been your self-talk or what has been your self-coaching or what has been your methodology to be able to overcome that? Um, the commitment to ever whatever the what, whatever the thing was. So um, I have to tell the story. So I have to figure out how I'm going to not be afraid to walk from X, point X to point Z or um, we need this money, so I got to figure out how I'm going to get there and you know raise those dollars and put together an event that's going to do that. Or I have to figure out um, how we're going to find a space for the school, um, and also having people um, who have been able to kind of go, "You're going to do it. It's going to be fine." But that also tells <laughs> me you got to be really careful about the commitments you make, then, right? Yes. So you have to be really intentional right. about like not taking on ones that you don't fully believe that passionately with. Right. And when you ask, you know, how how have I chosen the things that I've chosen? It's been because at my core, I believe in those things. And so when you believe in that stuff, it's not hard to ask for money or quiet that voice or figure out who do you need to help you figure out how you do health insurance for staff or whatever the thing might be that you've never done before. You know, you, you but but it's because the the nut that you're protecting is so important. And, and I, I ha in any of those things, whether it was that story or this place or whatever will be the next thing, um, I have to have that belief. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily approach a life's work that way. Sometimes it's how can I make the most money or how can I, but for me, it's always had to be that, you know, my heart is 100% there. So, um my experience with uh, successful entrepreneurs dealing with hundreds and hundreds of them has been that the challenges facing 90% of them are psychological challenges. So at a certain level, when you've found something and you're getting something started, that's not necessarily true. But when you're getting it to be sustainably successful and trying to get it to actually sustain beyond you personally, that the challenges are really um, psychological one. And oftentimes people find when they're putting these deeper games into place that the, what they really need to do is have a lot of physical uh, rejuvenation because they're giving, 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 giving. They get depleted, 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 depleted. And the question is, how do you um, restore the positive energy, which if you have it with you, I'm guessing it, you're throwing it off onto everyone around you. And I'm going to guess that the opposite is also true, that if you're depleted, that it isn't as much fun for people around you. Um, what, do you what do you do to get refreshed or rejuvenated? Or, or repleted? So um, on a daily basis, I ride a stationary bike for about nine miles every morning. 
Um, that's because I had this knee thing, and it's the, it makes it possible for me to zip through the hallways and get everything done in a day without being uncomfortable. Um, I also um, work out and do kind of, you know, uh, like a hardcore workout about three or four times a week. And um, then for about a month, I travel with my amazing nuclear family, and we escape this world, and we go to Greece, and we wander around the city of Athens, and then we um, plunk ourselves down on this little remote island that I can't name, and uh, we just relax. And uh, we always joke around, people wouldn't even recognize us there because right. we're just so chill and, you know, big questions. Do we walk up the hill to the beach or we walk down the hill to the beach? Do we go to that amazing restaurant or do we go to this? You know, big, big problems. Um, and it's that, that really rejuvenates the three of us, actually, because, um, you know, in order to do this work, I, I just have to say that um, it's impossible to do this without your family buy-in. And sometimes it bumps into what your family wants and needs, and this certainly has from time to time. So there's no way that I couldn't have done this without, you know, the support, even Elias as a little guy, but certainly of Will and my extended family, my chosen family, um, people who have, you know, sort of supported me or listened to the crazy or whatever it is to sort of um, make it possible to, you know, start it all over again on a Monday morning. So you've kind of uh, described some of your journey as you know, student, um, these are my words, a social activist, photojournalist, you know, uh, education entrepreneur. And the way that you've described it in a very nice way is almost as if it's sort of um, cosmic. But I wonder if some of it is intentional. Do you think that you were intentional about moving from this stage to this stage to that next stage? Um, I think the intention comes from being moved by the issues before me. So even though I've always functioned outside of a political landscape in the sense of party, that kind of thing, but I moved by the social issues that are um, sometimes most daunting but feel to be the most important. And so in my younger years, it was as my friends were literally dying or as my own rights as a young woman felt threatened. Um, and then, you know, in, then I became a mom and I realized that, you know, I want great things for my kid and the kid that he's going to be growing up around. And so that became, you know, it was that same energy and that same commitment to a social gap that, um, that sort of propelled me forward into into taking this crazy leap. <laughs> career career following life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I will say, I would just add even to the past question of what's the other thing that rejuvenates me. I mean, I do need to go into our classrooms multiple times during the week to take pictures because that's my happy place is when I'm taking pictures and I really miss that. I mean, my wings have been clipped, my lens has been clipped, all of it, you know. So I do really miss the um, the opportunity to be creative. And so, um, so that I do have to sort of regroup with that um, from on a, on a somewhat regular basis to be able to to do this. So my question is going to be: So what's what do you think the next chapter looks like? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Let's see if we get some aches and pains. Does yeah. it mean maybe we'll we'll have senior care education? <laughs> 
you know, they are doing Montessori stuff. Let's see. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I have that crystal ball to be able to say. I feel like um, I've moved through my life being really aware of my surroundings, as my grandfather used to tell me to do. Um, and I've seen what matters, what the gaps are, what my skills and talents are to be able to address them. And maybe I don't, that's not in focus yet. And remember in my life, I have, um, you know, a husband who is um, uh, a little bit older than you and a son who's 12 and I'm kind of in the middle. And so um, there's a lot of um, different needs. And so I don't know what's going to catch my attention yet and, and feel to be both important to on a personal level and also in a bigger picture. Oh, can't wait. So you and I have spoken before that most of the super successful, however you define that, curious, passionate people we know are constant readers. Are you reading anything interesting you want to pass on? Or I, have you been I have. I have to admit that my reading time happens in the summer. I am oh, like yeah. so exhausted in yeah. the winter. I, 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 my one commitment is that before midnight, I have to read the New York Times that I still get delivered to the mm -hmm. driveway every day. And then I get the New Yorker and I, you know, really try and get through that and I it's about all I can it's t I'm it's my biggest weakness okay here's a reading here's a reading tip for you yeah um, you would love Michael Pollan's new book uh, changing your mind oh. which is about the use of psychedelics oh. <laughs> well and I can read that together yeah okay <laughs> so uh, I think probably a lot of people who listen to this would think wow this is a woman who's a powerful woman who's strung together a, a string of successes really super well um, and yet, I'm guessing that uh, along the way there were some learnings that were some, there was some adversity, some challenges, maybe even some failures. Were there some failures along the way that you can think of that you felt were particularly great learnings that turned into positives in hindsight? Okay, stick with me here. So one time, I was um, at an interview with a New York Times Magazine editor, and I had this project that I'd been working on for years about people in the South Bronx trying to access quality health care, or even just health care, actually. It's a project that I committed years to, and you know, well, and funded through the work that I did, so like I'll have pizza tonight so I can get some more films so I can go back to. And um, at that particular interview, the editor said to me, you know, this work is really compelling, it's really interesting, but why would you think that people want to eat their bagels and read these stories and see these pictures? And so I think the idea that what I felt was so important and was like living and experiencing through these people's lives, they were letting me into their most intimate stories and aspects of their life. Um, didn't mean that much to people who were themselves storytellers and kind of opinion makers uh, was a huge disappointment in terms of human, like human, what am I doing? Right. How am I going to do this? Right. And so... Um, what did you conclude from that? I have to figure out how to tell these stories a different way. So that particular project that was ended up being a 10-year project, I, I ended up, you know, finding funky, interesting, like there was a huge, a significant exhibit that was at the, um, it's not called this anymore, but it was the Tisch Hospital at that point, the NYU's uh, hospital. And, you know, I, I tried to bring it, to, I, I would meet with doctors at rounds, grand rounds at various hospitals and nurses and say, this is what it looks like when you, you're, you send your patient home. And so I just shifted it. I took it in a different direction. Um, and so I think... Um, 
there were those kinds of failures, which out of which I really sort of learned, all right, so a door closes in your face there, pivot and find another opening. And so um, that's probably my biggest, I mean, in that same meeting, the woman said, you know, you seem so light and funny. Why are you always doing all these death things? Well, it was interesting when I asked you, what did you conclude from that? You didn't say, I concluded they were bad stories, that no one was interested. You said you concluded, I have to tell them a different way. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. everybody's story has power, right? Particularly people who are entirely unempowered, and nobody ever gives them the space to tell their story. So it didn't, you know, squelch that, like, core belief. Right. Just I had to figure something else out, so... So there are some people who listen to this podcast who are um, who are nascent entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs. I've met a lot of people in the past five years uh, across the country who are young people who want to be education entrepreneurs. They're, as you probably know, uh, sort of education technology, uh, education, everything is a very, very hot spot in terms of venture funding and, and all kinds of funding. If you knew someone or if you were going to give advice to some smart, driven college student who's going to graduate and wanted to be in education, um, what would it be? So I think if there is a policy person in that group, um, there's some amazing opportunity in some of the works that, that some of the groups that are doing transformative work, often in a, in a public school, district setting, school by school, a district, a whole state sometimes. Um, and I think that that is... Um, an amazing growth industry. And I have met through that Manchester Proud piece, uh, some unbelievable minds with incredible creativity and opportunity that opens up because there's money there. And um, not just because there's money there, but it's like that's a whole zone where in a public setting you can practice a craft and you can kind of push through innovative ideas, I think. I'll I'll let you know in five years if it's really worked. But I I think that that would be one. And then the other is, I think, um, finding educational opportunities wherever they may be, whether they are, you know, in a public, a private setting, sort of, you know, a charter setting or a magnet, but finding places where you feel that your voice will be heard, that you'll be able to have input where you'll be up that craft, practicing your craft, I think in anything that any of us do is so important because then you're valued and you're growing and you're also, your own envelope is getting pushed sometimes and um, there's a reason to, you know, those challenges I think are all the reason to go to work in the morning really because otherwise. Um, and for some people, a very traditional classroom setting is, is going to be great and, and that will be, you know, that's also out there. There's there's lots of that out there but I think for a more innovative person who's interested in education the notion of policy is going to be key we have to someone has to save us from ourselves in terms of what we're doing in public education and we need that same kind of innovation that you know your tech friends out there um, have to bring to um, this basic human right that is I believe that education is okay last question you ready yeah this is your chance Is there like one misconception that you think that people have about you that you would uh, that you feel is a misunderstanding? <laughs> okay, so I am a control freak, and I admit that it's not really a misunderstanding to understand that, it's but a good the motivation, <laughs> but the motivation is maybe sometimes misunderstood. 
So it's not because I don't think other people can't do it well or whatever. It's, it's, I, I'm fully attuned to my, it's like my own disability being a control freak. But I do feel like, you know, I, for all the things that we've talked about, like I kind of can't rest until it's right. And so that's the motivator. It's not an insult. It's, you know, so I feel like in there is kind of the tangle of what sometimes is misunderstood. Great. That's a great answer. Meryl, um, I think that people who just heard your answer will understand perfectly. If they're entrepreneurs, they get it. And I would just say, I think you're an awesome entrepreneurial talent. And actually, I think that one of the secret ingredients for success for Millfall School is that the underfunding has been a benefit. The underfunding has you know, lit the entrepreneurial idea here on fire. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk with you. It's Thanks. been deep. <laughs> Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Meryl Levin. She's terrific, isn't she? Next month's Positive Enterprise Value podcast interview will be with my friend and client, Cam Brensiger, the founder and CEO of Nemo Equipment, one of the best-known brands in the outdoor adventure gear in all of North America. I know you'll learn a lot from it and laugh like hell as well.